was like, you know, listen, I think, you know, I think this, this would be really good for the sport, but there's no way anyone's going to let you in. Like, are you are you crazy? Like, there's no way you guys are going to be able to sort of pull this off. So what do you do when the two biggest teams in the sport aren't interested? We'll give you no time, will not sit down for interviews and are not going to let you into their garage or their debriefs or anything. Will you go and find the other stories? It's a totally different beast, but a really fascinating challenge. I'm Krista Smith, and you're listening to Behind the Wheel, a Drive to Survive miniseries. This weekend is a race weekend at Skip Intro as well as in Melbourne, Australia, where the 10 Formula One teams are gearing up for the third race of the year. Over the next three days, we'll be bringing you three special episodes of Skip Intro, dedicated to going behind the scenes of Formula One, Drive to Survive. In March of 2019, Netflix debuted Formula One, Drive to Survive a series that took a look behind the curtain of elite car racing and one of the world's most glamorous and dangerous sports. Over the past few years, the global audience has exploded, even here in Hollywood where it's attracted fans and actors like Brad Pitt and Keanu Reeves, and where Formula One drivers are now gracing the covers of Vanity Fair and GQ, which in large part is thanks to Netflix bringing Drive to Survive to the world. Here in episode one, we speak with those who were there from the very beginning. Executive producers James Gay Reese and Paul Martin, as well as Formula One journalist and Drive to Survive expert Will Buxton. Hi, my name is Will Buxton. I'm a Formula One broadcaster and journalist, and I am one of the featured experts on Formula One Drive to Survive. Formula One is something I've loved since I was a child, and I have absolutely no recollection of the first race that I watched but my parents took me to a hill climb when I was really young, probably about four years old, and I fell in love with motor racing that day. It was just the smell, the sound, the fact it was really terrifying, and there were people in the midst of all of the insanity controlling these mad, crazy machines. And they just immediately became my heroes. And I think from that point on, every Sunday that there was a Grand Prix, uh, it just became a tradition in our house. You know, mum would cook the Sunday lunch and we'd all eat our Sunday lunch and then watch the Grand Prix. Away we go at the British Grand Prix. We were very lucky in the UK. We had a, a programme every Sunday called Grandstand, which was loads of different sports. And Formula One was one of those sports. And we had the most amazing commentator called Murray Walker, who was just an absolute hero in the sport. And his voice was part and parcel with falling in love with the sport. So as a kid, I never thought that, that doing anything on television was, was conceivable because that's what Murray Walker did. That was, that was Murray's job. But I knew from a very young age that I wanted to talk about Formula One and I wanted to write about Formula One because it was, it was the only thing that I was ever interested in. And when Ayrton Senna was, was killed, I was 13. And Ayrton was my, my, my big, big hero. And my dad bought me my first copy of Autosport magazine that week. And it was in the words of the journalists in that magazine that I, I kind of began to understand not just the gravity of Senna's passing, but what he'd meant to people in the sport. And I knew then that that was what I wanted to do. I set my targets on becoming a journalist, a print journalist. 
Uh, I studied politics at university to try and give me a, a more rounded sort of writing style, really, to teach me to research, to come up with my own conclusions, but to write in my own style. And I wrote my politics thesis on the politics of Formula One, which my lecturers thought was dreadful and tried to fail me on, but the guys at Formula One magazine thought was, was quite cool. And they gave me a couple of weeks' work experience. And at the end of those couple of weeks, I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I turned up with a pillow and a sleeping bag and said, I'm, I'm not going. And they were like, we weren't going to ask you to. Uh, we'd like you to stay on as our staff writer. In the 20 years since, Will has worked his way through the world of motor racing, including stints in the U.S. at Speed Channel and on NBC. Eventually, Will got the call from Formula One, where he now works as their main broadcaster. Will's Drive to Survive journey would not have existed without the award-winning producers behind Drive to Survive. My name is James Garys, and I am the executive producer of Drive to Survive. I'm uh, Paul Martin, and I'm the executive producer of Drive to Survive. So I worked at Miramax very briefly in New York many, many thousands of years ago, and then I went to Paramount a few less thousands of years ago. I'm making movies, just regular movies, and then um, came back to the UK and made a film for, called Senna for working title, which got my kind of interest in Formula One sort of going. Yeah, one thing led to another. Paul and I met and started the company. We were very sort of enthusiastic to make sport, really high premium sports documentaries because we felt there was a sort of gap in the market to do that. I worked as a, a sports journalist and so was always fascinated with storytelling in the sports world. I didn't really want to be a sports journalist that, you know, covered matches and stuff. I was more interested, you know, I grew up sort of reading, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, Norman Mailer, The Fight and stuff like that. And it seemed to me that or premium sports storytelling was was done so well in kind of literature and magazine articles, but was was done less well on kind of TV and film. And, you know, obviously Senna aside, and Senna was such a seminal piece in that development that made people realize that actually if you if you tell stories in this sports space you know in a way that that most people approach other stories then then there's a huge audience for it so i was sort of post then even though i didn't know james i was sort of intrigued by this development and felt that you know that there was a there was a bit of a niche for you know this kind of doc series and and documentaries you know in sports space yeah, so Paul and I went to a an agent sort of uh, networking event in London, actually. It was CAA, I think. And we just really, by complete chance, bumped into some of the marketing team from Red Bull Formula One, Formula One Racing. Just started talking to them about, you know, where they were at and obviously explained that we, you know, we'd made that film Senna. Obviously, they all know that film, so that was an easy conversation. And they sort of just said, you know, God, we'd love to do something behind the scenes, you know, because they were quite progressive in their marketing and, you know, they kind of, you know, as you can imagine at Rebel. And so, yeah, we just got talking, cooked up an idea, took it to Liberty, who had bought Formula One, a guy called Sean Bratches, who'd come in from ESPN, pitched it to him, and he was like, it's great, but we're not going to do it. We are like, oh, my God, why not? He's like, because we're already talking to Netflix about doing the whole show the whole sport rather, but why don't you consider, you know, coming on board that? And obviously we had a little bit of goodwill in the bank because we knew the people who ran the sort of business affairs side of Formula One from Senna. So, you know, we can, we joined up those dots pretty easily. And to be honest with you, as far as my memory serves me, it fell, fell into place relatively straightforwardly. It was a big deal though. It was a really big deal to land it. And it was, you know, I think literally at that point in time, it's Paul and I, and maybe one or two people in a tiny office in Hatton Garden in London, 
Yeah, we did a we did a recce at a couple of races before it started. We went to Brazil and then we went to the Abu Dhabi, which were the last two races before we started the show. And we sat down with pretty much every team principal and you know some of the drivers and had conversations about what we thought the show was was going to be. And, and I remember having a I remember sitting on a rooftop in Abu, Abu Dhabi with Cyril Bitbull from Renault and. You know, he was great and he was like, you know, listen, I think, you know, I think this, this would be really good for the sport, but there's no way anyone's going to let you in. Like, are you are you crazy? Like, there's no way you guys are going to be able to sort of pull this off. I think we were fortunate and in the right place at the right time as Netflix were figuring out what, what the Formula One show was going to be. And, and you know, we were asked to sort of come in and, and oversee that. And you know, it's been great, you know, to basically the world changed for us uh, from that day on. The access given to the Drive to Survive crew was unparalleled, thanks to the partnership between Formula One and Netflix. For Netflix, the partnership would further their mission of working with world-class brands and production partners to produce best-in-class unscripted series. Despite the exciting collaboration, it's hard to imagine that Formula One Netflix, or those at box-to-box films could have dreamed up just how much of a success the venture would be. Formula One is the ultimate competition. Got drama. Oh, there's a puncture! Competitiveness, high stakes, politics. How can you call that a fair championship? It is described as a traveling circus. We pack it all up. And 24 hours later, unpack it in a new part of the world. We've all got thousands of employees that all share the desire to win. The drivers are the best in the world. We all believe we are the one. Your teammate is your worst enemy. He beats me every race. My career's done it. You know, and it was amazing. It came together so quickly that I don't think we really had that much opportunity to really overthink it and really have any idea of what it what it really was going to be like. I don't think we really found that out until we went to the first race in Australia in Melbourne. And as James said, it just it came together so quickly from hey, we're gonna do this. Do you guys want to be involved? To suddenly we were in Australia making it. Paul and James put together a crew of directors, cinematographers, sound operators, and editors that would be able to take on the gargantuan task of following the Formula One season. In the first year, the crew had access to eight out of the 10 teams, which meant they would be following eight team principals and 16 drivers. It also meant that they'd have to have a presence at all 21 Grand Prix that year starting in Melbourne, Australia, stopping in the Middle East, Europe, Singapore, Brazil, Mexico, Texas, and ending in Abu Dhabi, all in nine months. In addition to the Formula One teams, the producers also needed on-screen experts to walk viewers who were new to Formula One through the basic mechanics of the sport, as well as weigh in from time to time with an outsider's perspective on what was happening on the track and in the paddock. Enter our friend, Will Buxton. So when I started at Formula One, my boss was a guy called Sean Bratches, who had been with ESPN and 
you know, was was an absolute titan in the in the industry. And he's one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. He's that kind of boss who was so many rungs up the ladder. He didn't need to know everyone's name, but he did. And he knew what their kids were called and he knew what their interests were. He was one of the best people I've ever worked for in my life. And so when Sean asked you to do something, you just said, sure, Sean, whatever. Because you knew it was going to be good. And you knew that if Sean wanted you to do it, it's because he personally handpicked you to do it. If Sean had faith in you, then you knew it was going to be okay. And he's just walking through the office one day and he's just like, yo, Will, I need you to do some interviews for this Netflix series we're doing. And I was like, okay, Sean, cool. And I thought he meant that I would be doing my job, which is to go and interview the drivers. I thought he wanted me to to do some interviews with some drivers for this new series on Netflix that, that Formula One had, had signed. And I just thought that was going to be my job. You didn't think anything of it. Okay, cool. That's my bread and butter. That's what I do. No problem. Turned up to the first recording session and the guys were like, uh, there you go. You can, you, if you could sit down there. And I'm like, oh, wait, you're interviewing me. And they, they said, yes, we're interviewing you. Okay, three, two, uh, one. Ah. Okay, well, this is a little bit different. So the entire Netflix experience was not what I had thought it was going to be at the outset. <laughs> Being on the other side is, I can be completely honest, initially incredibly daunting because I've spent my entire life asking the questions, not being asked them. And you suddenly realise how hard it is to formulate an answer <laughs> when you don't know what's going to be asked. For season one, several teams opened up access for box-to-box -box films to follow their drivers and team principals, including Red Bull, Haas, and Renault. However, the two biggest teams at the time, Mercedes and Ferrari, did not participate. This lack of access seemed like it could have doomed the show, especially since the then world champion and biggest name in the sport was Mercedes driver Lewis Hamilton. Lewis had been racing since he was a child, rising in the ranks of karting, all the way up to getting a seat in Formula One in 2007. By the end of the 2017 season, he'd already won a remarkable 62 Grand Prix and was a four-time world champion. He was also in the rare position of being not only a key figure within the sport, but had managed to earn himself a place in the midst of the zeitgeist. But as Will Buxton explains, the absence of Mercedes and Ferrari actually provided an opportunity for the series to shine a spotlight on underappreciated aspects and lesser-known figures of the sport. The intent was always there from box to box to get behind the scenes to tell real, true human stories. The curveball that was thrown at box to box was that for the first series, the two championship protagonists in Mercedes and Ferrari wanted nothing to do with the series. So what do you do when the two biggest teams in the sport aren't interested? We'll give you no time, we'll not sit down for interviews and are not going to let you into their garage or their debriefs or anything. Will you go and find the other stories? And I actually think that was probably one of the best things that could have possibly happened to the series. Because rather than focusing and channeling focus and, and time on the championship rivals, who were already getting all of the headlines and 90% and of the coverage. They had to find other stories. They had to find people and storylines and emotions that, that weren't necessarily the, the headline grabbers. And so because of that, you know, people fell in love with the Haas Formula One team and, 
you know, crazy, sweary Gunther Steiner and they fell in love with Daniel Ricciardo and people who weren't necessarily fighting for world championships, but people who box to box realised had these great emotional draws and they became the the heart and soul of, of what Drive to Survive was in, in those early years. And then to add to that, you get a global pandemic. One year after Drive to Survive's premiere, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak of COVID-19 to be a global pandemic, resulting in sweeping lockdowns across the globe. Just a month later, on February 28, 2020, season two of the show premiered. We were so lost and we were so devoid of contact that to have this series that told you stories of people that for a lot, a lot of folks had never heard of, or if you were watching it, you knew them, but you... you felt like you got a a step closer. And during this time where we weren't seeing people that we loved, to feel closer to our heroes or to feel close to a group of sports people that we'd never even heard of was massive. So people were finding Drive to Survive. It was gaining popularity. It was constantly then in the top tens globally on Netflix of, of suggested watches. That perfect combination of a, a peerless production company who found the right stories, regardless of the hurdles thrown in their way, and created something which then, at a time where the world needed, you know, something human and real, it, it found it in this sports documentary with a sport that somehow was continuing through a global pandemic. And everything just pieced together to create this, this perfect storm. And of course, then we get to the end of season one and we're going about season two. And Ferrari and Mercedes, yes, please. Yeah, we'll have a piece of that. You know, how much time do you need? And yes, you can have our drivers and our team because they suddenly realised what this thing could be. My name is Toto Wolf and I'm the team principal of the Mercedes Petronas Formula One team. I was uh, an entrepreneur my whole life. I'm having these guys all over me like you had. <laughs> in business, you can always find excuses. You can twist a story in your favor. But in motor racing, the absolute truth of the stopwatch will tell you whether you've done a good enough job or not. And obviously, we sat down with the comms teams of each team and, you know, eventually got a meeting with Danny Ricciardo and probably, you know, I can't even remember the other drivers, but, you know, we just slowly eased into it. And, you know, listen, the world has changed quite significantly since that, you know, those conversations, because obviously now there are more and more of these shows being made and it's much more sort of accepted sort of, you know, sort of activity. But then it was a bit, it was very unknown, you know, and obviously they had all seen Senna, but they've been trying to explain to them it wasn't going to be like Senna, it was a different sort of thing. So, yeah, we just, you know, just kind of bided our time and chipped away, really. And um, some of the teams were very receptive pretty quickly. Some of them needed more convincing. Obviously, Mercedes and Ferrari weren't in season one um, and then jumped into season two, which was great. They have to become familiar with you and sort of slowly, you know, build up that trust. Trust was everything at the beginning of Drive to Survive and has remained an essential component of the show's success. In tomorrow's episode, we'll meet some of the trusted members of the crew, who were invited into the homes, cars, and minds of the drivers and team principals of Formula One. I will remember where I come from, a lot of sacrifices. So I'm not gonna let anything stop me. You need to trust your skills, trust the car, and be one. Next time on Behind the Wheel, a Drive to Survive miniseries.
yeah, when race day comes, that's the best day of the week. Your adrenaline gets pumping, you get excited, because that day actually quite a lot happens in a short amount of time. We have a really great team. We have a really kind of loyal team. We have a team that loves what they do because you couldn't do this show if you didn't really love it. It's hard work. You know, it just, these are the moments that just, everything stops. You know, the world stops turning in that one moment. I never know what bits of, of me they've thrown in, so I'm, I'm always biting my nails as to, oh God, who am I going to have to apologise to this season? <laughs>